This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Where they're celebrating spring with some uh, awesome ingredients for your spring recipes. And not only that, they have the recipes online, Court. Easily one of my favorite things about Zupans.com is the great recipes that uh, you can find there. They are constantly updating them. They've they've uh, created these recipes themselves oftentimes. And so there's great pictures, great presentation, great descriptions. We have this. There's a pasta one from a couple of years ago that is still a go to at least once once a month in my family. Thanks to Zupans. Well, the best part about that is the recipes have ingredients you just grab at Zupans. So you don't go somewhere and go, oh, I can't find this. They're all going to be there. Yep. And, and really special things from not only locally sourced uh, products, but around the world. Uh, I personally know because we've done inventories of what they have from Sicily and other parts of Italy. And it's incredible. The, um, the, the work, the, the lengths that they go to, to provide some of the best products from around the world. So, um, that is fantastic. On top of that, they have really cool events where you can expand your food horizons. And I'm just going to, do you mind court? If I read off just a quick list of the April events and some of them, by the time, people will have listened to this might have passed but now you know to subscribe to the the news feed at zupans so you will know in yeah. the future what these are by all means uh, Chris, not, have at it i'm not going to give specific dates you can go on zupans and look but i'm just going to read off some of the things the events that they have there that are really cool you can sign up for a namasake tasting they have i love this Querciabella wine tasting. So uh, that is some, you know, that's Tuscany wine that you can you can try there. And that employs vegan biodynamics. Go learn what that is. Uh, port and cheese, beer one hundred and one. This is ales. Wilderton Botanical Tasting, and then Beer 101, the beers of Germany, and then, again, this is going into later months, which you can still do, Beers of Belgium, and then Ales versus Kettle Sours. Those are things that I think a lot of people would like to do. It's a nice little pastime. What else are you doing other than maybe watching sports and getting out and hiking? All right. So many great reasons for you to stop by your local Zupan's Markets. Three locations to serve you. You've got West Burnside McAdam. Lake Oswego, and of course, biggest recommendation is to go where? Zupans.com. All right, here it is. Time once again. It is Portland's Food Scene Podcast right at the fork with your host, Chris Angeles from Portland Food Adventures, and I'm co-host, Court Johnson. Welcome, Court. How are you? Welcome to this with this platform that we use to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're it, it's uh, it's Zoom-esque, so people can, most people can imagine what Zoom looks like. We're in something very similar. It's just designed for podcasting. It's even better now. I, I we talked about it last week. They allow you to go and find finally find uh, passages, written passages. They transcribe it, and you can go find something and pull it out and delete it and used to be if we had to find something we had to listen to the whole thing yeah had to right the the torture of listening to our podcast i should point out chris they they allow you to do that at an extra cost 
Oh, I didn't realize that that was an extra cost. Yeah, I, I started because you, you told me about it and I was like, well, that's really awesome. And then I started kind of diving into a little bit and was like, oh, OK. But hey, you know, but we're cheap bastards. We need another sponsor to editing sponsored by. There we go. <laughs> so fortunately we don't do a lot of editing once in a while but uh and i would bet there are times because of the way we do this i send you some notes you want to take a look at this i would bet you there are times we miss them and people are hearing stuff that we oh, probably would prefer I can gar- they don't i can guarantee well I, sh- I shouldn't say this as the guy who's doing the editing but uh, you know it's kind of frowns upon my own my own work but um, <laughs> uh no I'm, I'm sure i've missed some stuff here and there you, you know uh, but I, for the most part, I think I get it. It's it makes the, it real. It make it makes it real, but it also like um, you know that's I think the reason why podcasting is it, people are loving it is because it is a more pure conversation as opposed to what you get in television and radio, which is heavily edited or right. limited on time. Like it's it's a more real conversation. So right, and there are lots of them. God, there's so many podcasts. Oh yeah, now. yeah, yeah. it's just yeah. nuts. When yeah. we started this, there weren't any. Yeah. So, um, but I will tell you this: after in our tenth year here, right? We're we're in our tenth year. Is yes. that right? Yep. I am pleased because this last podcast we did, which was, uh, you know, Gary the Foodie again, mm-hmm. where <laughs> I just couldn't resist. We started talking about tipping again. You know, right. when I say I don't want to talk about it and then go into it, that's, um, you know, that's typical, mm-hmm. par for the course. But I will say I've, we have never gotten more positive responses from a podcast. I got a lot of people saying, thanks for talking about that. I'm, s- the tipping issue is, you know, uh, annoying to me and blah, blah, blah. So yeah. I got, I, you know, not a ton, but we don't get a lot of thank you for doing this. Um, you know, these emails and we did, but I got enough of them to think, wow, we're not. And I knew this. That's why there was a national article. We're not alone in this right. tipping thing. And, you know, the operators that are some of a large portion of our listeners, uh, they're on the other side of this, but I think some of them understand it. So, um, yeah. anyway, I was just glad about that to, to, hear about that last week. And so the other thing I got an email or a conversation about was thank you for talking about downtown and how difficult it is. And we've been kind of, you know, walking on eggshells with that because we want to promote the food world mm-hmm. and people should do it. But on the other hand, there is the harsh reality of what's going on. Well, last night at an event in Lake Oswego, I ran into a just retired judge in Portland who uh, I said, what kind of cases did you handle? Oh, all sorts of drug and criminal cases. And I asked him if he would be amenable to coming on the podcast to, and I asked him if he had suggestions um, about how to fix this. And he does. And he said he'd be happy to come on the podcast. So a little out of the ordinary, but I think it covers the food scene insofar as you know, the downtown food scene. And, and here's another side of it from a guy who is dealing with all the criminals and all the, the problems down there, the addicts. And, oh, it's, um, it's all connected. It's all connected. The, right. the deterioration of, of what's happening downtown and, and how restaurants and bars and, and coffee shops are unable to kind of uh, keep their employees safe and have regular well, customers and all that. Also, you know, we cover the Portland food scene. This is a big Portland issue because, 
you know, people used to think of this as this fresh, clean, beautiful uh, spot. And now, you know, let's face it, Portland has a bad rap. And, um, you know, we need to get over it. And I just, you know, I'm not there. You know, I'm out in Manzanita and I'm happy about that. Yeah. But I do go there and see what's going on. And I do consider Portland as part of my, you know, that's part of who I am. I chose to move there and here to Oregon. And uh, it's just such a damn shame. And I just can't believe it's taken so long to make any progress whatsoever on this. But uh, people say there is progress. I was down in the Southeast Industrial District yesterday having lunch. And uh, I did hear from somebody that it's just easier to walk down there than it was, that some things have changed. So I can't really tell from my personal experience uh, one way or the other. I did have my car broken into once. And, um, you know, that's that. But. I, th- I think there's a lot to, to be said about because um, I know there are people out there that, I mean, because we're talking about a, a pretty complex issue and there's a lot of stuff that goes into houselessness and, and the people that are struggling on the streets and you want to show compassion for what they're going through and, and and all of those things. And I know there's a lot of people, it's just like, that stuff doesn't bother me. I have no issue, you know, being around that stuff. I, I would totally patronize restaurants downtown. There's no excuse for this, et cetera, et cetera. But like, have it like if you go to places that have rampant home and homelessness and then you if you walk through like a neighborhood like that and then you maybe migrate into a neighborhood that has less right you will literally feel it in your body the change of just the, the tenseness right. you have whether it, it, it's you you can't help it you're just as a as a human being you you just become a little more guarded you get out of a scenario like that you become less guarded you feel more relaxed and so um things have to be done in order for businesses in the downtown area to, to be able to return to a level that we were pre pandemic. And again, um, you know, whether the pandemic was the cause for this or whether this was going to happen anyway, I don't know. Well, also, you know, just looking at it from a different perspective, just reading the closing message from Coava coffee from their Jefferson street location that they're going to close. You know, and we've heard this before, just the the employees were constantly in danger just going to and leaving work. Well, that's awful. And they dealt with that for a long time and finally just said, nope, can't do it anymore. We're not going to do it anymore. And that's really sad and scary. I've never been thought that I felt like I'm in peril very much at all. But just going to just doing your going to work to worry about your safety is kind of crazy all right we didn't mean to go there but there the, here's it's a nice segue other than the fact that i wanted to talk about two trips that portland food adventures has coming up and one is we just released it it's our annual it seems it's becoming an annual thing our third annual trip with leaf gildersleeve and eric england from flying fish on the snake river four days off the grid who better to fish with than Leaf, man? We've had he's we've got multiple podcasts with Leaf because he's a real fun guy, and he's great to be with. And watching him fish and learning fishing from him out on the Snake River, which is one of the most, the, the most special Oregon places one can go, and we're off the grid. 
That's in August, August 13th, right at the tail end of the um, peaking per se meteor showers. We're going to be out where there's no light pollution whatsoever. So we'll see that too. So that's there. That's at PortlandFoodAdventures.com. It's important that people call me because, you know, just to equate this to the topic of the day, which is the customer is not always right. Um, you know, a few years ago on this rafting trip, we actually had someone I had not spoken to beforehand who showed up in Halfway, Oregon, got out of their car, and the woman proclaims, I hate camping. And so that was a really good thing to hear right off the bat, like when her foot hit the ground in Halfway. And then her husband chimes in with, I'm afraid of the water. So this is the way I'm going to try to get over it. Now, if I had had this conversation with them beforehand, then I think it would have been a better trip for everyone. <laughs> if they hadn't attempted, couldn't figure out why they went. I think they went because uh, they were, this was the ringside trip and they were excited that, um, you know, they could eat ringside food on the river, but this was not the place to do that. Anyway, so um, it's important for me to chat with people so I can hear the kind of questions they're asking and what their expectations are on the trip so we can address those things and we can make sure we have a wonderful, cohesive group with us. Uh, at any rate, PortlandFoodAdventures.com. Anybody's welcome to call me, although I'm going to have a hard time getting up. Better, I think, to email me at Chris at PortlandFoodAdventures.com to set up a time to talk. And then there's also a great trip. We have a little more room available to Eastern Sicily, a trip we've done before that was sold out before, almost sold out now, uh, to, if anybody's watching, shh, don't say it. I don't want to get sued here. The White Lotus, or has watched The White Lotus, will be in Termina, and it's gorgeous, and it's just everything that you saw there, and we'll show you around, and we'll eat probably better than they did on the show. We're going to Noto to have Cafe Cecilia Cannolis. We're having cooking classes in Catania, um, and we're going to the base of Mount Etna to some for some incredible wine. This is with my dear friend, Austria Ensign, and she's been guiding all of our Italy trips, oh my God, for five or six years now. And she is just really special. People love her more than they love me, which is easy to understand. And that, again, you can see the itinerary at portlandfoodadventures.com. Okay, back to this episode. The segue was, you know, we're talking about everything that's going on in Portland. Well, there's a world out there that's outside of Portland, a food world. And you'll see that in this episode with Adam Evans, who's written a book, which uh, caught my attention, right? So in this world when everything's a little strange and we're all trying to figure out our way, the book is entitled, Why the Customer is Not, in capitals, Always Right. And so I thought having, you know, usually I... I deflect emails from publicists about books, you know, or about people in the food industry outside of Portland. I just thought this would be, I can't to talk to Portland chefs about this stuff and Portland operators because they're not going to talk about shitty customers, right, on this podcast. That's not a good political thing to do. Right. So I thought having Adam on, and as I'm talking to him in the podcast, he's operating in a different world. He's down in in Florida, and he operates a lot of bars and has done so for a while and owns a few. So his perspective is 
I think from like drunk customers for the most part and how to deal with them. But I still found it interesting and to expand our horizons outside of our kind of mom and poppy uh, world here to a different world where it's the focus isn't necessarily so much on the food, but the operation itself. And that's why I thought this was an interesting interview. And uh, Adam was very gracious and I think a fun guy and uh, worth a listen. Court, I hope you're going to listen to this one. I certainly am, Chris. <laughs> That's the question. Do you actually, how many of you actually said, I'm going to listen to this I, from start to finish? You used to be in the room and oh, we're yeah, not yeah. doing that anymore. Yeah. No, I, um, it's probably a good, probably, I want to say half because I, I try to listen <laughs> to them. But but admittedly, Chris, I listen to them at, uh, I don't know what the the speed, speed. level is, but I, <laughs> yeah. I speed it up. It's typically so that I can double check my editing which we alluded to earlier, but, um, so, so I, everybody I will, sounds like Mickey mouse or the chipmunks. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. And, um, yeah, this is, uh, it's, it's outside of our world to, to do this. And I just thought it would be in this world where we're talking about tipping and, and customer service. Um, it would be, it would be refreshing to hear from someone else outside of Portland. So here he is, Adam Evans. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers and local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland. West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. Ringside Steakhouse. For over 78 years, Ringside has been providing the best steaks and has been the home of the beacon of great hospitality in Portland. Make a reservation today at ringsidesteakhouse.com. And while you're there, sign up for their mailing list to be the first to find out about exciting specials and events going on at Portland's beloved Hallmark restaurant, Ringside Steakhouse. Portland Food Adventures. It's your opportunity to travel to the world's most celebrated food destinations with Right at the Fork host, Chris Angelis, and some of his favorite chef friends. Check out PortlandFoodAdventures.com for exciting and delicious itineraries to Spain, Italy, and elsewhere. Stay in great hotels, eat incredible food, and leave the planning to Portland Food Adventures. And by... In Oregon, flavor is not just about food, but about character, freshness, and sustaining this beautiful place. Our fishermen continue to work hard to bring that flavor to all families who care about good food and healthy eating. Oregon Dungeness Crab, the flavor of Oregon. Thank you for doing this. This is a little outside of the the box for us to talk to someone outside of the market, but I thought it was a great idea because I don't know. I, I don't know if we spoke about it, but... Right on the heels of a an Oregon chef having a tirade when um, one of his customers couldn't get s- tickets to one of his events and just merely went online and said, gee, I tried to get tickets the minute they went on and they were already sold out. And com- that was the complaint and got a massive tirade, not only being told to... Um, 
never come back to the restaurant, but anybody that agrees with her never come into the restaurant. So, oh wow, yeah, he she got a she got a um, your privileged lecture. So, at any rate, I had just seen that and marveled at it the day before. And I'm gonna the the chef who went into the tirade is going to remain nameless. I don't want to get involved. Sure, of course. <laughs> but I just saw that, and I got uh, an email about your book and you the next day, and I thought, you know, this is a good idea to talk about this subject, and uh, it's probably a little uncomfortable for anybody in our market to go out there and discuss this. But all the way on the other side of the country, 3,000-some-odd miles, you, Adam, could do it. Yeah, so here we are in uh, beautiful Tampa, Florida, and uh, it's a tourist destination for a lot of people. A very multicultural melting pot of different people and different cultures, and uh, trying to navigate that in the hospitality environment with the price of cost of goods and, and rent and everything raising, you know, is a very tricky thing to do to be able to provide customer service, you know, uh, as best as you can. Yes, and I'm going to ask you, maybe you can get a little closer to the mic because you are still light. Sure. All right. So um, I agree, but it's an interesting time. It's an interesting convergence of uh, customer service in the hospitality industry when you're dealing with a shortage of labor at the same time. So, uh, yeah, I want you to talk about your book. And it's really, it seems to me, is geared more towards the industry than it is to customers, but I think customers can take a lot from it in being better, in, in finding ways to be better customers, even though it may go against the grain of their egos and, uh, you know, their, their ideas of hospitality. So trying to navigate good customer service uh, when hospitality workers are overwhelmed is, is tricky. You know, it's, it's tricky when you're fully staffed, let alone understaffed and overwhelmed. Uh, so businesses can use this approach to kind of customize the type of customer that they wish to have in their establishment and that they wish to serve because they can only serve so many people in a short amount of time. You know, they can use some of the practices from my book to kind of make sure that every guest experience is great by eliminating problem customers easily and early from coming in and and messing up the flow of, of your establishment. So my question is, um, you're in a period where you have a lot of inexperienced people in the front of the house, right? Absolutely. Because they're hard to find. So they really don't even get it. I- I'm finding that a- not all of them, of course, but a large percentage of people serving today really don't have a clue how to serve in the first place. So, yeah, training is is few and far between in our industry, and that's something else that we specialize with my company is uh, – you know, management training and and just higher level training so that they can provide better training. Right, but they don't have time to do much. So to add, and I'm sure training is on the list of tasks of restaurateurs for sure when they hire somebody. But two, they may not be able to do a complete job. And secondly, you know, retention, (laughs) retention by people who are learning may not be that high. So, um, you know, I, I just find it it's an interesting time because uh, it is things can get a little volatile in the restaurant now. And but, you know, you're not dealing with the most experienced hospitality workers either. No, absolutely. And um, 
so many places, especially mom and, pop, mom and pop places, that are short-staffed and they hire somebody, you know, they give them, you know, an hour or two or four hours, maybe eight hours worth of one full day's worth of training, and then, boom, they're on the floor, you know. And uh, if somebody's been in the hospitality business for a long time, maybe that would be okay for them. But most people, especially the pool of hospitality workers that we have to choose from in this environment, need more training than that. You know, and they, they uh, if they're shown how to do things and how to do things well, then their time on the floor will be better spent making sure there aren't problems. Otherwise, as a manager, you spend all your time fixing problems from somebody who wasn't properly trained. You know, now you're running around fixing tables, comping tables because the waiter or waitress told them the wrong thing. You're going to the bartender, having them remake drinks because they, you know, used the wrong uh, cocktail inside your special cocktails that they weren't properly trained to make. You know, so I, I think that there's a lot of loss prevention there. And even though it costs companies a ton of money to spend that extra time with with training and, and follow through, I think that that's that's crucial to a, a successful hospitality operation now. Well, it's one thing to provide good hospitality to nice customers who just order and you serve them, and this is how you do it. I, I guess that would generally be simple if you're working in front of the house job, but but it, do, it doesn't always appear that it's it goes smoothly. But now no, you're talking, yeah, you're talking about how to how to quell uh, you know a problem and tamp it down in front of other customers. Yes, absolutely. You know, because they're watching. You're on display, especially in today's age. Everybody's got their phone out if the situation is spectacular. So you have to find a way to mitigate your risk as well as do it in a way to where uh, the people around you have compassion and understanding for what's going on and for the entire situation. Yeah, but you're always going to get the the people who just... Always think they're right, which is, you know, why you have the title of your book. But I'm a little, I would be a little concerned and I'm not, I'm not playing devil's advocate here, but you, even if you hand a book to a new employee that, you know, is entitled, the customer is not always right. Right off the bat, you're providing them with a, a foundation to think, well, you know, th- these people mostly suck, so I got to deal with them. Um, well, what I would say is the book is more geared towards operators, okay? More than more than first time employees. Um, it's more of like um, some of my thoughts for some of my managers across a couple of different locations, so that they can navigate their buildings. I feel like accordingly. And I would imagine it would be a good read for people who dine out a lot to see what, you know, to empathize a little bit with the front of the house staff and even back of the house as well. Um, but I, I, it's just um, nowadays, I think it's, it's really challenging for operators because of the labor shortage, the type of people, but also you've got people with different dining uh, needs and they've got either requirements or likes and they're positioning them as health issues when they're just, you know, what they want and maybe trendy. Not all people are like that, but man, there are a lot of people who call, you know, their aversion to something an allergy and it's just a mental allergy, I think. Yeah, no, they uh, they ruin it for everyone that really has a real allergy for sure. Yeah, and so um, 
And they ruin it for the back of the house because, you know, it increases the budget for post-it notes. So you need to have so many post-it notes for every single person who's got a different need. So um, I would, that's, that's a bit of a challenge. How do you suggest, um, how, do, how, do, how would you handle it when in the middle of the meal, someone announces, I don't like dairy or I can't eat dairy? It's a better way of wording it. I can't eat dairy in the middle of the meal uh, without having the back of the house notified ahead of time. How how would you suggest a server handle that situation? Well, first and foremost, I, first and foremost, I always want to give the customer the benefit of the doubt. So if this is my first interaction with that customer and this is the first problem that that customer has had at their table, if this is the very first issue that they've had, I'm going to fix it no matter what, 100% the first time, any way I can. Uh, if, however, that's the 10th issue for that same table and or customer, if you know where they sat them was wrong and the drinks that they brought them weren't quite right and the appetizers had to be sent back three times you know then i might take a different approach so so you know uh, it's tough to be able to provide a blanket rule for specific examples because you really do have to take each each situation uh, as they come and and like i said if it was just that they came in and said it was dairy even if it was her fault i wouldn't embarrass her at all I would apologize for the mistake and fix it for her, and then hopefully that would win her over, and, and we could grow a relationship uh, beyond that, because a lot of times mistakes give us opportunities as operators to win customers for a lifetime, and uh, being able to fix that mistake gives us a chance to, to really form a bond and interaction with that customer to take it to, a, to another level that other customers don't get a chance to experience. So, uh, like I said, first and foremost, fix it, but if it was you know, their fourth or fifth or sixth complaint of the night, then you can say, well, this customer is obviously being ridiculous. You know, maybe I'm going to go ahead and bring them the check and shut the entire order down at this time. Oh, I want to talk about that and go a little further and ask you whether it would make sense for a server to go tap into a manager and have them handle the situation. But I will say this, you said something that hit a nerve uh, long, long ago when I was in the advertising industry. We did some research. We had a, uh, we had a client, a bank that knew their ATMs were going to make mistakes because they were changing their system. And we did some research on that and found, this has been helpful for me throughout my whole life, found that if you, ha if you someone has a problem and you address it and fix it properly, you've got a better customer than one that never had a, a problem in the first place. So you, you tapped into that and yes, you have an opportunity when those things happen instead of uh, an opportunity to get pissed off and, and ruin a situation. But so, so if it is the fifth or sixth, sixth scenario and you've got, you know, a 22 year old that hasn't had a lot of you know that has spent a lot of time looking at their phone and maybe doesn't have a lot of experience with actual people in face-to-face -face interactions how, how do you suggest that plays out especially when you've got a real bad situation that needs to be addressed as you said go get a check and hand it to him that's never yeah, so that's not going to go well yeah it's, it's definitely not going to go well however somebody who's has experience can uh, definitely navigate that situation well. Um, 
and I do recommend at that point, obviously, you would need to get a manager involved, someone who's got some real experience, uh, preferably your front of house manager, kitchen manager, uh, general manager if he has to. Uh, but I think it still can be solved pretty, pretty easily. You know, if warranted, just comp the whole check. I mean, if it's really that bad, but just do it in a way to where that customer never comes back. And you never have to experience them again. Then even if the check is three, four, five hundred dollars, it's worth five hundred dollars to me as an operator for that customer to never come back ever again. How do you make sure that happens? Do you have them sign an agreement? No, I normally uh, what I normally do is will if I want a customer to leave and I'm prepared to comp a check, I will not comp the check. Okay. I will go over there and bring them the check in full. And if they special ordered things, I'll change it to market price, and I'll raise the price on them, and I'll give them a, uh, I'll make a three hundred dollar check, seven hundred fifty dollars. Okay, but you just said you wanted to comp them the check and then make sure they don't come back again. How does right? This is how you do it because they're never going to pay that seven hundred fifty dollars. They're never going to pay it. They're going to walk out. They're going to be upset. They're never going to want to come back. They're going to be embarrassed by the situation. You're going to stand strong that they pay it. They're going to be upset and leave, and then you comp it once they leave. Well, you're forced to comp it at that point. And then, uh, absolutely. But at that point, who cares? You've already realized that you don't care about this customer. You don't ever want them to come back. Their experience with you as an operator was absolutely horrible. You know, uh, you've, you've tried to fix their food three, four, five different ways. Uh, you've uh, told them that you would adjust the bill and that wasn't good enough for them. Well, at that, price, they can pay, at that time, they can pay full price. They can pay market price. And if they don't want to pay it, I don't care. Don't ever come back. So I guess you're, you're thinking in that regard is that you're not going to get a good Yelp review no matter what. It's already Absolutely. going to suck. So and I might so- as well get paid. You, if you're going to pay this overinflated bill, then that's fine. That's, that's what it's worth to me for having to deal with you this entire experience. Right, but then they're going to go on Yelp and say they had the nerve to raise the bill. And uh, I don't know. To me, I'm not arguing with you because I've never been, thankfully, I've never been that customer. <laughs> But no, the, I mean these these types of experiences are few and far between. Obviously, right, it's right. it's um, you know the exception to the rule. But because they're so few and far between, between, they need to be talked about because there's no standardized training in the hospitality community. Mm-hmm. So do you have a do you have a read on uh, the percentage of people who are actual shitty customers out there? I mean, I know I do trips with people and we've done them for six years and i have a pretty good idea on how many i don't don't necessarily have a read because i believe that the environment cultivates it so um if you are an operator that's providing amazing customer service you're going to limit the amount of shitty customers you have because people are going to be inclined to be pleasant and friendly to people that are genuinely trying to fix any problems that they have yeah you know? so but that's so my it does question go hand in is hand. there's a percentage percentage of people that can't don't even uh don't even react well to that they're just that no there thing. is for sure i mean i don't know how much that would be but it, I, I mean i would consider it to be at least five percent maybe ten percent as high as ten percent somewhere floating in that and uh, which is a, a big number when you think about it's the thousands huge. of people that you serve on a weekly basis in order to have a successful operation, you know. Um, but we can still win those customers over. There's still a lot of tricks to win the majority of those customers over as well, and that's why they continue to to be customers. They're, I feel like those people are almost customers because they're looking for something wrong to complain about. So as long as you do everything right, 
you really don't give them an opportunity and they come back over and over looking for something to complain about. Oh yeah, that's true. But they'll, I guess they'll find it. Listen, I want to, I want to take a little break, uh, for a word from ringside steakhouse here. And, um, and then come back and talk to you about some of your top tips right off the top to, to mitigate problems and soften them when there are other people at other tables watching. And uh, that affects them too, right? They could Absolutely, that, because they're watching how you uh, interact with those customers to see how the, you're going to interact with them potentially. Right. So let's, let's take a break and we'll come back and um, we will continue. Hey, Chris, let's pause a moment and talk about Oregon Dungeness Crab. It's a favorite dish at holiday gatherings, special occasions, or just when you're in the mood for the sweet, delicate deliciousness you can only get from Oregon's tastiest crustacean. It's harvested sustainably from Oregon's cold, clean coastal waters and is available now at your favorite seafood retailer or restaurant. Oregon Dungeness serves up equally as an appetizer or an entree and lends itself to both down home and white tablecloth cuisine and it's also as nutritious as it is tasty we know it's tasty a three ounce portion of cooked meat has 19 grams of protein and contains important minerals and amino acids it's low in both fat and calories as well as cholesterol and carbohydrates, that's important to me. Yeah, and rest assured, the fishermen are not just delivering a delicious and healthy product. They're also taking care of natural resources for future generations. Visit OregonDungeness.org for information on preparing your favorite crab dish and learning more about the fleet. So go ahead and crack the mystique. Oregon Dungeness Crab, the flavor of Oregon. All right, you're listening to Right at the Fork, and we have Adam Evans here, author of the book, Why the Customer is Not Always Right, and uh, I find this to be a very interesting conversation because we are at a time in the hospitality industry where hospitality is uh, maybe a little more difficult to accomplish and is more important than it's ever been. So, uh, sorry, I just kind of left that out there. No, so, no worries. Let's talk about some of the, um, I don't know, maybe I should give you particular situations, or let's just talk about that person that has uh, complained four or five times at the table, and it's about time for them to get up and go. Um, and what is the language that someone should use? And I, I would imagine staying calm is really important. And that's... Oh, absolutely. This is not about emotion. And I talk about that in this book. You know, uh, this is a business decision. That is the exact wording that I use. You know, you have to make a good business decision. It's not about whether you like that person or dislike that person. You have to say, is removing this person and or telling this person in a way to not come back to your establishment good for your establishment if the answer to that is no then suck it up and deal with whatever the problems are fix them and and move on about your day if the person gets to the point where you know there's no there's no upside to their uh, experience with us then that is a simple solution is we just can't have them come back to the establishment and so how what is the exact language that one would use Maybe bringing the check, putting it down, and then saying, "Well, um, you know, I think that uh, it wouldn't necessarily be at that moment. 
Um, and it could be at that moment. It, like I said, everything is debatable depending on when. Uh, but I do think that at that time you can say something similar to, um, uh, we are so sorry that you have not had a favorable experience with us. Uh, it might be better that you dine with someone else in the future. And, <laughs> and it, it, you don't have to be rude about it. It doesn't have to be done in a you know condescending tone. You know, like I said, it's a business decision, you know, but if you sent uh, a steak back four times, you know, that you had a 40% cost of goods on, and then still after all those sendbacks, you still wanted it removed from your bill after you've cost the company X amount of dollars, I mean, sure, I'll remove it from the bill at the cost of our relationship together as a customer. Because I've tried to fix it multiple times. Do you, suge- you, know, so. do you suggest that a restaurant has a budget for these types of situations? I know I can equate it to when I got a puppy, I budget $1,000 of damage. So whenever he eats something that I love or ate something that I love, I'm just not that bothered because I say, well, that was within the budget. <laughs> And I'm just going to move on. I'm telling you, it's one of the best things I've ever done when I've had puppies is to give them that yeah, budget. So, so, yes, absolutely. <clears throat> and, you know, when you're selling a couple thousand meals a week, for an example, you know, if you've got, you know, 10% of those are sendbacks, but they're customers that you're able to fix the problem and give them a plate that they're happy with. I mean, I, I would think that that would be uh, acceptable. But if somebody is constantly taking advantage of the system over and over again, you know, if you allow that to happen, those types of customers will tell other bad customers that they could take advantage of the situation at your location. So really, you, there are people to, who do that. That's their that's ab- their absolutely. primary and objective is to go into a restaurant and not eat, not but, eat win. but win. Yes, absolutely, and it's so sad. Uh, I don't know if maybe in Portland you don't experience much of that, but over here uh, it's uh, crazy the amount of people that will come in and make up stories about their food or their experience that didn't even exist. Literally, you have to roll the camera back. And and it's sad because uh, people's jobs are on the line based on some of these crazy allegations. You know, so, you know, uh, customers make things up. Uh, and they're sensational with the things that they say. And luckily, we live in an age where we can literally run back the camera footage and see that that was not the case. But at the time, things get a little tense and the employee feels a little scared because, you know, they may be accused of something that did or did not happen. And it's not until you run the camera back that you realize that it's a habitual group of customers that are constantly lying in order to obtain free goods. It's crazy. You know, it's interesting that you say that because our market in Portland, I think we have generally sympathetic diners, you know, going through the, um, and supportive going through the pandemic. There were a lot of people who just adopted the attitude. I'm going to, I'm going to do takeout as much as I possibly can to help. And then uh, as much as I've complained about tipping, uh, you know, when you just pick up a bag, um, you know, they've gone above and beyond. I always said along the way at some point, 
restaurateurs are going to have to figure that one out because I don't want to always tip for just picking up. I don't want to tip somebody the same percentage on a meal for grabbing a bag as I do when they're actually giving me customer service. That's my little rub. And I've actually had listeners tell me, stop, stop conversing about that or, or complaining about that. But I think we're there and we're at this really strange time. But, but what I was saying is I think Portlanders are pretty good diners, but you know, you can't go across the board. You mentioned cameras in a restaurant and I equate that with chains. We don't have a lot of chains up here. We have a lot of mom and pop. Yeah. Uh, even those there's cameras everywhere. Yeah, no. So that's a little bit of a surprise yeah. to me to think, Oh, I'm being watched here. I think you can just assume you're almost being watched everywhere nowadays. So how often do you think an operator goes to the videotape? And uh, I go to the videotape uh, probably two or three times a week uh, across. Yeah, I would say maybe once a week per location. Three, but I go three probably three times a week for three locations. And then, so you so. Ju- you're able to identify the moment pretty easily. Uh, you yeah, can't these go cameras the whole are all like service. Yeah, 4K cameras with amazing zoom. We can literally zoom in and see the signature line. We can see the customer what they write in on the tip line of the credit card. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I'm gonna eat that, home more. Eat, home more. Yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> and that I mean that saves us on credit card disputes as well. Uh, it also saves uh, bartenders, for an example. Uh, they've had a customer sitting with them all day, and and um, you know obviously after six, seven, eight hours of enjoying the bartender's company you might be a little intoxicated so his signature and his tip line is not quite right you know the wife sees the slip and immediately says that's not my husband's signature calls the bank for a fraud dispute luckily the cameras can see him clearly writing in the tip and signing his name and we can use that to send to the credit card company about their experience and that it that was a real charge yeah, I would imagine that comes in kind of handy. That's like yeah, it's so like having the, the the dash yeah. cam uh, and being able to cover that. How how just technically speaking, how far back can you go on your on your system? You must pay for um, uh, storage. It, each location is different. Um, hard drive space is cheap as long as you know. I don't think any of our. I think only one of our systems is cloud based. The rest of them are all on uh, localized hard drives. All right. So listen, we have one more commercial break to do, and I'd like to come back and talk to you about your experiences, your restaurant, what made you decide to write this book, how well it's been received. Should I just list 10 questions and then we'll go to the break and come back? No, let's do it when we come back with Adam Evans. Hey, Chris, we are pausing just a moment to talk about one of our favorite places to eat, Ringside Steakhouse. Hey, Court, I know you love the hats, and I kind of do, too. I always have a hat on. Mm -hmm. For the first time in Ringside's 79-year history, you can get a hat, T-shirt, even an apron for your favorite Ringside fan. Those are available in person on West Burnside. Go to when you, while you're eating, ask for them, or just stop in after what four thirty, I guess. Yeah, this is really exciting for me, Chris. We were talking about this off air, and when you told me this news, I got really excited because uh, a few years ago, I noticed somebody back of house at Ringside wearing a really cool Ringside T-shirt, and I thought. I would like one of those, but you know, it's ringside steakhouse. You wouldn't necessarily think to go there and buy a t-shirt. Now you can first time in 79 years. This is exciting. This should, this should be headline in the New York times. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so take advantage of that. Also take advantage of the three course prime rib dinner that takes place on Mondays. You, you've you done this. Oh, yes. And it used to be Wednesday. So be aware because I yeah. had a friend join me for dinner once and she was expecting Wednesday night prime rib not happening. So, yeah. Um, but they do have it available outside of the special on weekends as well. So you can get prime rib with their unbelievable Yorkshire pudding um, on those nights. But the special is Monday night. That's the night to do it. I was there last night. Wednesday night, it was packed. So, um, But I wasn't packed to the point where you couldn't walk around in the uh, the hostess host section, but it was, it was nicely packed. And of course we had an incredible, including a, a meal, including the Wagyu, which anybody has to do once at least in their lifetime or more. Once you do it once, you want to do it more. And I have, uh, don't forget right now, because it is Dungeness crab season. You right now on the menu in the, in the appetizer section, the chili lime Dungeness crab cake. So get that while you can, or the crab cocktail was unbelievable. So, I suggest anybody there, if they're, if you're going with the table, get the crab cocktail and the prawn cocktail and have a, start your meal off the right way, including onion rings, of course. Oh, yeah. Got to do, do that. Got to do that, too. So also, one quick thing, because we've been talking a little bit here. Halibut season starts May 10th, and Ringside will have that on the menu made Chef Jonathan Gill's way after that. So mark that on your calendar and make a reservation. You can do it at ringsidesteakhouse.com or on the Open Table app. All right, we're back with Adam Evans. Whether you are a an operator or whether you are quote unquote an operator as a customer this is uh this is something we we think would be of interest to you to pay attention to and of course go get the book that's available on amazon adam is that correct it is uh hard hard copy as well as ebook why the customer is not always right uh, out right now um next book coming out is hospitality horror stories friday october 13th Oh, that's the one I want to address. So you're in the process of writing it. By the way, how long did it take you to put together uh, both books, uh, but specifically the one that's already out, because you know what that timeline was? Yeah, so um, uh, I started compiling a bunch of information that I wanted to share with not only my other hospitality operators so that they could understand my viewpoint, but also just a way to share knowledge with my future generation as my son who's now eight was younger i was thinking what if god forbid something was to happen to me how can i share some interesting quirks about uh, what it is that i do Uh, what are some of the more important insights that i have to give that are different than what everybody else is teaching Uh, so i i set out to write a a much bigger book and um, i broke it up into three parts so this is actually the first of three parts. Uh, I thought this went along good with a lot of topics that I have across one of my Facebook groups um, where it's a group of bartenders and servers, uh, Tampa area bartenders and servers called Tabs. It's about 30,000 members strong. We post dozens and dozens of hospitality-related jobs there for free every day, and we uh, help people find employment all the time for free every day. Uh, and... Uh, but they're constantly sharing some of their customer experiences 
some of the bad manager perspectives that they've had to deal with to the community of bartenders and servers. And uh, I took some of that shared uh, thoughts and experiences and decided to expand on that uh, from an operator's perspective. That's interesting. So we didn't really cover what you operate. So let's talk a little bit about that. And then, um, yeah, what your experience was writing before this, or is, is it something that, you know, do you, did you consider yourself a good writer or did you just consider yourself a wealth of knowledge and you were going to figure out how to, how to put that on, on paper or on screen? I've always been a well-rounded writer. I, uh, started a music magazine in 2001 and, uh, ran and published a, a music publication, uh, 5,000 copies distributed monthly, and I did that for about three years. Um, most of the other writing that I've done until then have been script-related writing, so I kind of knew that I could uh, navigate it well. I did, however, hire some uh, editors to fine-tune my content. Okay. okay. And so um, I started just kind of by jotting down things as they happened to me, uh, experiences as I saw them, and I uh, just opened up a Google Drive document, and I just started, every time something would happen, I'd make some notes, and then I went back and kind of really expanded on that, and uh, during COVID, since I had some extra free time, I I took all those notes and compiled them together into a, to a, a story about how to how to navigate the world of crazy customers. And that was leading up to COVID. So then you, then you just got the icing on the cake with that. I would imagine, I don't know, maybe you, you, know, you, you have bars. Those weren't necessarily places that were open and people were doing takeout. I don't know what the laws are in Florida. I don't even want to discuss laws in Florida. Let's not even get into that. So, <laughs> yeah, no, they're crazy. Have you, have you been a Floridian uh, your whole life? Yes. Okay, so, um, and are you well-traveled to have dined in, gotten the experience to dine in different places outside of Florida a yes, lot? Yes, I, so I travel frequently. Experience. Pardon me? Yes, I travel frequently. I uh, I got into this business as a DJ uh, 20-something years ago, and uh, as I uh, would travel for major concerts and events and parties, I would see the difference between well-run operations and non-well-run operations. And uh, every time we're in different cities, we're eating out every day, always. And uh, so uh, I got a great opportunity to see all the different types of hospitality that are provided. And um, finally, I just started uh, throwing some parties of my own and concerts of my own. And sometimes I would throw them at places where the operation was not run well. And they would want me to do events there, and I would demand that they used my staff so that my customers could get the experience they deserved. And so finally it just turned into me uh, operating their building, <clears throat> operating their building, their friend's building, multiple buildings. And uh, so I've been in the nightclub bar slash like tapas-style restaurants for the last 20 years. Right, so you were kind of the original pop-up. Let's go in there and, and make sure it's it's proper. Yeah, no, so uh, sometimes I would take restaurants over and we would throw parties, events, um, you know, brunches, other things. And uh, if I didn't think that their staff would provide a good service for the people that I'm bringing in there, then I would 
demand that they use my staff. Pretty cool. Now, how many? How? Uh, what kind of staff do you have at your multiple locations? And let's talk a little, just quickly, about your operation now. Yeah. So uh, between all the locations, I probably have, I don't know, maybe eighty-five to one hundred staff members uh, at any given moment. Um, the uh, several of the staff members work at all locations, so. It makes it easier to juggle people's schedule. When people want something off, it's not necessarily a request off. They just tell me when they want it, and we cover it and make it happen. So what's the name of the – is it one name for all the locations? And uh, I'd, I'd prefer not to say publicly. Oh, all right. Well, we all want to go. We want to experience your hospitality. I want to go and no, just – I'm going to fly to Tampa and just give you a hard time just to see how that goes for fun. No, we could definitely do that. There's a uh, wide array of steakhouses we could attend. <laughs> well, yeah, but not yours. Well, that's interesting. So um, let's talk a little bit about your next book, because that topic always interests me, and I can't wait to see that. Can you highlight maybe a couple or three of the most insane things that you know of, not necessarily in your places, but of course, you're part of a big group. So you've read about some crazy stuff. I mentioned one right off the top that just happened here in our area. Um, but let's hear some of the best ones. Yeah, so I kind of, um, uh, one I'll talk about, uh, I do a segment called Hospitality Horror Stories, and uh, we had a customer that came in uh, every Tuesday, I believe it was, and he would literally eat half the steak every Tuesday, complain about the steak, and then he would switch it to pasta. And then he would eat the pasta and get his bill. Well... On the fourth week in a row, the chef himself was in the building, and the chef says, I'm going to, I'm going to cook this guy's steak tonight. Okay? So he took the ticket. He prepared the customer's steak. Uh, the customer then proceeded to complain about the steak again. And by the way, how did he want it? Did he want it rare or well done or medium rare? No, he says he wanted it medium well. Medium well, okay, because some things yeah. are easier to accomplish than others. When you start no, getting to the well, normally done it's side. like a well done stuff that yeah. you yeah. can't. It's a hockey puck. Oh man, I know, it's the worst. But uh, also, too, side note: most customers when they order steak, they don't even they're not even ordering it right, right, right. Which is the other part of it as well. So a lot of chain franchises has given them picture menus to point to the color of pinkness that you want it. Well, or, uh, or as we experience here at Ringside, when I order a steak, they actually recite back to you exactly what that looks like. So you want a you want a, a, a warm pink center, and you just nod to that. So that's on your way to doing the right thing. So that's interesting. Right, no, exactly. So, but any so, thought they were, you were never going to catch on to this? And yeah, so uh, uh, the chef was a little emotional. Uh, as chefs can get sometimes when they have an item returned to them, they're uh, very prideful, especially since most of them don't normally work the line much if if it's a big establishment. And uh, he came from the back of the house to kind of berate the customer, and the, uh, him and the customer kind of went at it, not like physically, but verbally for a little bit. And... Uh, the chef asked that customer to never return to the establishment again. 
So uh, kind of a, uh, a horror experience that went a little too out of hand because it was uh, a show for the rest of the dining room that should not have happened. Well, I would imagine sometimes it's kind of fun to actually see those fireworks, especially when it's the chef. You can, you can, then you can go out and say, listen, he's not in front of the house. Um, you don't want to apologize at that point, but, um, yeah, it's good to have a chef who gets involved at that stage. So what people need to understand, I think, and you can probably explain this better than I can, when someone sends back a, whatever the steak might have been, 30, 40, dollars, whatever it might be. With your margins, that's not just a food cost loss, right? That's you're using up the the profit on that steak, which you can no longer make. And then if you've got 5% margins, that's a huge part of your profit every night. Every little bit counts. And when you're, if you're losing, you know, if, if a lot of things are sent back and wasted, you can be unprofitable pretty quickly. So that Yeah, very fast. And that means that your you know, your kitchen staff has to be on it and as well as your front of the house staff. It's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, so you have to pay attention to all of it, you know, if uh, uh if somebody, you know, if employees are st- stealing 10 meals a day, you know, across all your staff, I mean, over the course of a month, that's that's an expensive loss. Do you have a lot of experience with that? I know um, a few restaurant operators I know fairly well have uh, told me about some, you know, stealing that goes on in the refrigerator, and mm. that's where cameras really come in handy. You got it right yeah. then and there. I, I, I encourage all operators and all uh, business owners to have an aggressive employee discount program on non-alcohol, con- non-alcohol consumables. So, like... Um, I try to give at least 50% off on anything for an employee meal. Uh, that way it encourages people to not want to steal it. They can just order something nice for a discount. Um, you know. However, you- obviously that cuts into margins as well. But in theory, we sh- an op- you know, if priced accordingly, operations should be able to afford to give employees a 50% discount for one meal a day if they're not doing family meal i suppose that too but um do you also i also find it interesting when i order something and ask a server about it or whether they like it or or i'm what i often end up doing it's probably a shitty customer thing to do but oh i'm torn between this and this what do you suggest and the answer I just don't want to get back is I've never had either of those things. Uh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, that goes back to some training as well. Um, you know, and, and not that I would encourage it, but that faking it is better than absolutely. just pick one and be confident, you know? Yeah, or the worst, and I've seen this, I've gotten this a lot. You're at a seafood restaurant. I don't eat seafood. So the server will say that. <laughs> I mean, that's got to be a bad hiring decision to hire somebody that doesn't eat seafood, I would think. At, at well, not only Maybe, that, yeah. but uh, yeah, we had a situation here where uh, there was a lawsuit over, and I don't remember the specifics, over um, uh, someone not hiring vegan at a place that had no vegan food, and they just didn't want to you know, be in that situation where they hadn't tried anything and they d- d- couldn't believe in the restaurant. That was a few yeah. years ago. I, I don't know. Yeah, that's a tough. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah, so. well, it's also tough to, to educate people 
along those lines. But, um, but yeah, if they, if they're not, if they can't even think on their feet enough to just make up a story, oh, this is great. You're going to like it. Or even go so far as to say, well, most people I serve like this a lot. This is a really, this is a great dish. Um, I actually had someone do that at, um, the, it was an employee owner place and it's newly employee owner out on the Oregon coast. And we asked her that question and she gave us an answer. She literally came back five minutes later feeling guilty that she chose one child over the other to recommend to us <laughs> and said, no, I just want you to know that dish is really good too. It's all right. We got it. It's cool. And this is excellent. <laughs> so, but I thought that was really passionate to come back and just almost feel sad that she didn't recommend the other one. So, um, what kind of feedback have you gotten on the book? You obviously have a Facebook group, so you can get some immediate feedback. Uh, I do. I've gotten some pretty positive Amazon feedback. feedback. Uh, I, I get great feedback from uh, employees. Not necessarily the best of feedback from other operators. <laughs> because they think they're smarter than you? Well, no, I think it's because the cover is a little more deceiving, you know, uh, when you read the cover, you think I'm going to talk about um, a whole bunch of horrible things that may happen throughout the course of hospitality when trying to mitigate risk. But it's really not about that. It's about being able to, to provide the best hospitality experience to the customers that value the service and the experience that you have to provide. And then you go from there. But yeah, the title of the book... The first thing I, that came to mind is, oh, good horror stories, which you're writing. And yes, no, and I, and I have some in there as well. So I've, I've taken screenshots from uh, bartenders that are in my group, and uh, I've put those inside the book in correlation to some of the things that I talk about to kind of give some uh, a second opinion or, or a bartender's perspective of it. Um, you know, and sometimes I say, yes, I agree with this. Sometimes I say, no, I don't agree with this. This is what I would do instead. And uh, it's it's definitely some new school thinking on operations. I was the youngest bar, restaurant, and nightclub operator for a long time that I know, and now I'm becoming a seasoned pro. <laughs> <laughs> Do you look back and think, man, I knew nothing back then? And oh, you thought you did. Yeah. You obviously no, back, thought you knew a lot. Oh, man, back then I thought I knew it all. <laughs> and uh, I mean... I knew more than most, for sure. Uh, but what I did know how to do was put people in the building. So right, right. as long as you can generate the dollars, you can figure the rest out on the way. So I made a lot of mistakes, but I was just blessed enough to keep having loyal customer support and, and residual customers that come back to my establishments over and over and over again. Well, you, had, you started from a standpoint of... Um, Music and drinks. That's a little different than food. And yes. also, I would imagine um, it's got to be a little challenging for bartenders because you're dealing with people who are increasingly getting more inebriated, so they make less sense, and they react not so well to Correct. any negative thing. Right? That's a no, lot d different than at the dining room table, I would imagine. Yeah, huge difference. And that's... Uh, <laughs> that's where a lot of really amazing front of house operators, you know, fail is dealing with drunken, unruly customers. And you have to spot these things before they happen. You have to see the warning signs leading up to it. You have to make sure that drunk customers 
don't already come into your establishment are already inebriated because then you're taking all the risk with none of the potential upside of being able to serve him any more drinks because he's already wasted you know so uh it is a whole new set of of things to to pay attention to and to mitigate and to uh, uh walk carefully around so is are all your bartenders completely on the lookout for that uh well, they must be you're gonna say yes of course yeah, well i would i'm very blessed that my bar staff have all been with me for years and years and years i only have two new bar employees uh that are within the last year the rest of them have all been three years or more so because of that and because of the longevity they've had with me they know what i like they know what i expect they know what to look for um i also have uh, a group of guys you know barbacks and uh, other you know waiters and floor staff that notice these things fairly well that have also been with me for quite a while so um it is just it's different than being at you know uh, a nice fine dining establishment uh, where you don't normally have alcoholic drunken outbursts regularly versus you know even if you were in a uh, buffalo wild wings or um you know a even sports bar type restaurant you're going to deal with these types of risks on a somewhat more frequent basis so uh, trying to spot these warning signs and and keep them from happening is is key. So you got into the business uh, gradually, right? The, this is what I need to do to operate what I'm doing. Your your you know DJ business, um, and so you never really made a conscious decision. I want to own a restaurant or a bar. No, um, I did. Uh, yeah, well. Um, we bought our first location uh, in 2017, November of 2017. That's not long, um, ago. long ago. So not not too long ago. But no, you made uh, a conscious made decision a then. But right. what, what put you at the doorstep, uh, no pun intended, was that you'd already experienced this and thought, well, this is the next level rather than yeah, going I into restaurants w- and bringing my staff just having one or bars just having one. Yeah, I uh, I never thought that I would be on this side of things, on the business side of the operation. Uh, I much more enjoyed the entertainment side of the operation. Uh, I would think that's it, what a lot of chefs would say, too. They really enjoyed cooking, and then after a while, they're just sitting at a computer ordering and doing numbers. And that's and- the frustration part that I have currently is, um, you know, I would much rather be throwing the parties, hosting the parties, making sure that every aspect of all events, you know, or brunches or experiences or, you know, weddings or uh, banquets or any any interaction, that is fun to me, where the operation side is not, you know, having to uh, manage the P&L and focus on payroll costs and focus on liabilities is not the fun part for me. I would imagine so. So then the question would be, if you were given, so it wasn't long ago, that's why it's, it's a little relevant. If given the opportunity again, and shit, you just went through a pandemic too, and you never know if that's coming back or not. Um, would you, you know, if I was 
uh, well, not your son, but if I was younger and came to you and said, Adam, I'm thinking of o- opening this bar, what do you think? Would you? I had someone steer me away from a particular area of advertising, and it made a huge difference in my life. And I thought it was going to be the coolest thing to be a creative on Madison Avenue, and I was steered away from it by one of the top, top, top people. And I'm glad. So what would you say to someone who wants to open an establishment now? Well, uh, location is key, but being able to understand uh, how many costs you have to pay attention to and how you can get nickel and dime to death in this business, you know, that is the difference between those that succeed and those that do not in the restaurant, bar, hospitality world is, you know, focusing on every BevNap, every cup, every dollar. And it makes you a a uh, kind of like a Nazi running around the entire I restaurant. Say, I was about to say you know? an asshole. It's no, you're definitely the asshole. That's the part that sucks. You know, <laughs> you're always the asshole because you're constantly telling people no. Hurry up and clock out so you don't get overtime. Hey, you don't need to use too much of that. Hey, what are you doing with this? You know, and so it's like. Uh, although I do that well now because I've been forced to pay attention to all those things. You know, who wants to be the asshole forever, right? Oh, I'm sure some people could answer. I, I'd rather enjoy that. I don't know, but and and here's the other thing about assholes: they don't realize they don't think they're assholes. I mean, that goes right sure. to you know the the king and queen of narcissists. They they absolutely can't see where they might. So buy be. my book, so I don't have to be an asshole anymore. That, there you go. <laughs> so yeah, well, that that one last question, um, I would say. The book is there for people in the industry, but I, we have a lot of diners who listen. Yes. What would you, what, what advice would you give? And some don't need this, but what advice would you give to the narcissists who are listening out there who don't know that a narcissist? But general advice on being a good customer that they may not realize. Like, you know, they may. Well, but I, I think I, it doesn't even have to be a good customer. It comes down to being a good person. Well, because yeah, we but then make, you can't teach that. We all to make good mistakes, you know. You we, can't we, te- we all make mistakes, you know. It, it, the customers are going to make mistakes. The employees are going to make mistakes. Uh, if they genuinely are concerned about the mistake that they made, or if they genuinely want to fix it, then that's a relationship you want to save forever, you know. So, uh, and if you're a customer and you're in, interacting with a waiter or waitress who is genuinely trying, but they are dropping the ball and they're fumbling but they mean well and they're trying, give them a break. I'm not saying give a break to the waitress that's an, you know, an asshole and treating you poorly, you know, and vice versa when it comes to the customer. And, and I talk about that in the book is everybody, everybody has a bad day. You know, we can turn that, that day around for that customer. We can win that customer for life. And I would say the other thing that's important to do is when you sit down and you you know you may be otherwise engaged as a customer, but take a look around and see how many tables the server is dealing with at any given time, and realize you know something may come out a little late, or they may not come back to. I, I can't believe I'm saying this because anybody who's eaten with me would say, "Oh yeah, you you," but uh, you know realize that you know if your water's not filled right away, 
they may have a ton of they have may have a lot of responsibilities going on. On the other hand, there are some that don't and still don't understand hospitality. Yeah, ticket, so, ticket times are not what they used to be, and you know places like Olive Garden would only give servers three tables for a long time before they earned the right to have a fourth table. Some of those servers at Olive Gardens in my areas are getting seven, eight, nine, ten tables at a time, and this is that's unprecedented for that brand to even really allow that, but. Um, you know, that's just what you were talking about earlier is trying to find qualified help in this in this industry. And I would imagine the Olive Garden Diner on t- regarding tipping starts at zero percent. Like this person really needs to earn it. And 15 percent is a lot. Whereas right now we're at a point where at some of the nicer establishments or just middle of the road, you know, th- they turn that square. They bring the the square to you and the they're starting at 20 percent and going up and i think that's a little bit problematic because when you're an operator and you're starting at the the thought that you should leave 20 percent as a minimum then people's expectations are just going to be raised that much higher right they want 20 percent so i think it's a little challenging but uh, what, yeah, what have they done to earn this twenty percent for sure? Right, and, and I my, think about that. That's my problem with getting handed a bag, and I was okay with that during the pandemic. I'm starting to be less I, um, okay with that now. I'll, I'll, I'll chime in on your bag segment for a second. So, without being told anything, I've always done like at least ten percent for the bag, and twenty percent for in, in dining, um, and I th- I think that that seems to be fair and go over well. Right. And I also, oh my God, I'm going to do it one more time. When you're buying a cup of coffee or a bagel, I wish the operator would just add that 15, 20% to the cost. So a $3 item would be $3 and 50 cents. And then literally say, we don't have a, you know, we're not asking for a tip. I've had that done before where there's even either a little sign or I've had the, the person behind the counter say, no, 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 we don't take tips. It's we've got it covered. I really appreciate that as a diner because I don't want to have to make a mental decision on how to pay an employee uh, every time I buy a cup of coffee or get a get a bagel. So yeah, no, at, I, at the I, coffee stand, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, so um, I think people are starting to figure that one out. Um, but there I go again. You know, this the customer service issue is a big one for me because I believe. You know, to wrap this up, a large part of the dining and drinking experience is in the is in the service. And if you have a really good service experience, the food takes it doesn't necessarily take a backseat, but it's not quite as important. And yeah, uh, I have a famous saying that I tell my staff at every meeting, and that is people come for people without us, without the staff, without the experience that we provide. We are just a building. I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you for that. And I think it's true. I think uh, that's why people like to go out to eat is to have some interaction and here's, hear a little action too. You don't have that action at home. So, um, so that's, uh, that's good. So uh, I really appreciate your coming on. This was definitely No, thanks, Chris. I really the, enjoyed it. Yeah, it was outside. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you share it with your 30,000 I will, uh, absolutely. Listeners. I'm going to for sure. I, I shared something this morning that uh, you could see me on this and uh, I'm looking forward to sharing with them the actual show. All right. We'll send you the links um, when it when it releases. Um, and I'm curious to see what people in Tampa would think about the whole Portland f- food scene. We've got 10 years worth of episodes with chefs, which I think 
represent restaurants that are probably a little different than the mainstream in your neck of the woods. So sure, no, yeah, we have uh, we've got some great uh, mom and pop style restaurants as well, and I, uh, I'd love to talk to you as well as some of those other chefs. I have a uh, segment called Back of the House Confessions. Um, that I do as well, where chefs kind of tell me their uh, their secrets of of horrible things that have happened while they've been back there in the back of the house. I think I got a couple I could refer you to that would be plenty happy to do that out of market. So that sounds great. Even the ones that would do it in market, but uh, yeah, we had some crazy things happen here over the last few years, and but we had crazy things happen before that. But um, we've got an interesting food market, and it had risen to the top of the the uh the food world and then you know took a little bit of hit during covid not necessarily because of the food but because of the politics and the, some of the issues that were going on in portland and uh kept people away so it's a little harder to operate without a lot of tourism but we have a very supportive market here and hope someday to host you we'll go out and grab no absolutely i would love to come over there it's a it's a good place to visit. It's kind of how I started. It was a um, it was a woman um, in South Carolina who heard I was from Portland. It was a chef, and she told me, "Oh, I've heard so many good things. I want to come there." And that's when I decided to kind of start what I have been doing in 2010. I thought, "Wow, if that's of interest to a woman serving gullah food in South Carolina, that's Portland's got to be of interest to a lot of people." So. By the way, what defines Tampa? One la- I'm sorry for continuing, but what defines Tampa from a food and drink standpoint? Is there something that is a specialty down there? Is it crab? Um, what is it? Well, there's a, there's a restaurant that kind of defines Tampa, like a steakhouse. Burns is uh, probably one of the most famous, well-known restaurants in our market, for sure. Uh, when they're, people are talking about food, they're saying, you got to go there. Good. And you got two other recommendations for those going to Tampa so we can tell people if they're listening to this podcast, if they're going to Tampa, they should listen to this podcast? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so uh, you should check out Ocean Prime. So that would definitely be a, a great place to check out. That and, would be seafood, uh, I would imagine. Yes, yes. And uh, if you're looking for a great steak, you should go to the Tampa Gold Club. Tampa Gold Club. Okay, well, we've got two steak places. Other than yours, because you won't name them, best bar, best place to go have a drink. Um, what type of drink are you looking for? Lounge style atmosphere yeah, or cocktail, drunken debauchery? Cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you're looking for uh, a good cocktail, um, downtown has some some great places. They have some amazing hotel bars down there as well. Uh, they've really just uh, created an entire. Um, craft cocktail niche of just some really cool speakeasy type places so and, so the uh, hotels would be the place to go downtown yeah and and uh just on the same streets as as some of them and some of the same little areas uh there's just a ton of places they can go and bounce around it and get an amazing lounge style cocktail if they're looking for a little bit more debauchery i would tell them to go to ybor city uh they can get some you know Young fun bars, some piano bars, you know, high end nightclubs, um, you know, show bars, five story nightclubs. Uh, Are you dealing with a spring coyote. break crowd right now? I heard there's some problems down yeah. in Fort Lauderdale. Yes, not not in our market. Um, 
because Ybor City is spring break 24-7 year-round, uh, security at these locations and the police in, in that area know how to deal with crowds very well, very effectively, and very safe. Very nice. And so how are the Rays going to do this year? Oh, please, cross our fingers. So uh, I was hoping that they were going to move to Ybor City. Oh, so, uh, well, I was hoping they were going to move to Portland. <laughs> right. For no. lack of a stadium down there. Yeah, no, this this Ray Stadium's the worst stadium uh, I, there is. I, I did a cross country two cross country trips with my kids and we went to uh, basically every major league stadium over two summers. That's awesome. Yeah, but I ignored Florida cuz A I'm not going there in the summer and B just at the time this was 2002 and 2003 neither of the ballparks down there were worthy of going that far out of my I, way. I understand. Sure. So, uh so I've never been to a, a Rays game per se, but I am a fan because they're in the same division as the Yankees. I'm a big Met fan, so I really couldn't okay. care less about the American League East, but I do hope that the Tampa Somebody Bay, beats the Yankees. Somebody beats the Yankees and the Red Sox, too. So um, We have um, both Yankees and Red Sox. Oh, well, Red Sox is in Fort Myers, a couple hours south, but right. we have a Yankees spring training here in Tampa and then Red Sox spring training in Fort Myers, a couple hours south. Yeah, no, that's good. You know what? I just realized this year as a Met fan, and I don't ever remember this being the case, but and I pay attention, and the, the Mets are only playing only four teams in spring training over and over. The, the Phillies, the Braves, the Astros, and the Marlins. That's it. And they don't go to the west side at all. So these the players who are getting, you know, what, $40 million a year, it's too much for them to drive across the state for a couple of days and stay in a hotel, which they're staying in hotels anyway. Yeah, no, that's... Uh... <laughs> And I won't understand it for a long time, I'm sure. There's a lot not to understand about Major League Baseball, but I still enjoy it. And I'm watching, uh, I just watched um, your guy, Rosarina last night um, lose to Japan. That was kind of, that was a good game. That was an awesome game. So, all right, man. I didn't even check in to see if you were a baseball fan or not, but I thought. No, I that's all right. I, I watched a little bit with my son. Good. I haven't, I haven't followed closely in a while, but. Um, is he more My, uh, into baseball or soccer or football? You guys have the the Buccaneers down there. So he plays flag football, but he likes to watch. He also played uh, baseball for the Oilers, so he kind of likes to watch baseball. But um, I think he's more into video games. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the case. And the problem with that is I have to deal with rules changes in baseball now to appeal to your 8-year-old son who's not paying attention anyway. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, he's good for maybe 15-20 minutes at a time and then it's like, all right, dad, it's game time. Yeah, no, game I time. going to ball games and having to leave in the 5th inning just because of that. So, yeah. Well, when we go to uh when we go to places, he enjoys the experience. So we go to football games to the Bucks uh, quite a few times, and and uh, he doesn't have to look at a screen the entire time. Right. Well, you know, I talked about those. I mentioned those uh, cross country trips with my kids. They weren't allowed to look at Game Boys. This was o two and o three the whole way. I wouldn't let them because I wanted them to get a feel for how big this country was, and have I don't know if it was appropriate or not, but have that experience in the back of the car, watching telephone poles go by and counting them, and trying to keep myself occupied in the back seat without 
the stimulus of a screen. Uh, I don't know if I'd get away with that now, but it was. I'm glad I did, and I think the kids are kind of glad. I did relent from Cleveland back to Connecticut. Uh, okay, we're done. You can pull out the screens now. So, yeah, it's definitely it's yeah, definitely it's hard. Little, My son's it's got more a of a challenge now, of man. That was when we were. I was first realizing we were dealing with it. All right, we're off topic, and but I enjoyed this conversation. It's always more enjoyable for me when we go off on a tangent because uh, because it's just an interesting conversation, and you know we have something to talk about. If if you were uh, if it was pulling teeth in this podcast, we would have been done a half hour ago. So thank you <laughs> for being a great guest, Adam, and uh, good of course, luck, with Chris. Thank you. Both of your books. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm looking forward to speaking with you again about uh, other chef related topics. All right, that'll be good. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Chris. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right